If you want to take your Bibles this morning, we're going to go back to Revelation 16. And we're going to finish up this chapter. We've been studying through Revelation. And in the recent past, we've been looking at the last seven bold judgments that come at the end of the tribulation period. And we've gone through the first six of those bold judgments. And so today we are going to look at the seventh in chapter 16, at the end of chapter 16. And so we're going to start reading at chapter 17 through the end of the chapter, chapter uh, verse 17, I'm sorry, chapter 16, verse 17, through the end of the chapter. So if you've found Revelation 16, you can follow along with me, starting at verse 17. It says, And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since man were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Let's have a word of prayer before we get into our message this morning. Again, Father, now as we look into your word, we just submit ourselves to your authority and the authority and power of your word. Lord, we know that your word is truth. You've told us that everything in it is profitable for us, for correction, for rebuke, for instruction in righteousness. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us this morning, even in this passage, that we would see things and learn lessons that apply to us today as your people. And so, Lord, we just ask your spirit to be among us, to open our hearts and minds to that which you would reveal today. And Lord, use me as your mouthpiece. I need your help and I need your strength. Fill me with your spirit, I pray, and give me the words to speak that we might hear from you and be challenged by your word today. And we'll give you praise during this time. And we thank you for your purpose and your work. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to the last of the seven bold judgments, we are at the end of the tribulation period, and we are at the end of God's judgment on the earth. Now, the bold judgments, remember, just a little review, are the seven judgments that come out of the seventh trumpet judgment. And we've looked at the first six And just as a review, back in chapter 16, if you go back to the beginning of the chapter in verse 2, we have the first bold judgment that caused men to have sores or boils on their body. The second bold judgment was poured out on the sea, and it turned the sea, and everything in the sea died. Then the third bold judgment in chapter 4, I'm sorry, in verse 4, polluted the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became like blood. The fourth bold judgment in verse 8 caused the sun's heat to increase so that it scorches people with fire. And then the fifth bowl in verse 10, the angel pours out on the throne of the beast and the entire kingdom is plunged into darkness. And remember, the Bible says that men gnawed their tongues because of the pain. And that was the compilation of all of those things together now in the midst of darkness 
people just couldn't handle it. In verse 12 through 16, we saw last week that the six bowls poured out on the great river Euphrates and the water dried up by a miraculous act of God so that the kings of the east can come to the place of the battle of Armageddon and join in that final judgment. They're led there by God for God's purpose where he will finally judge and destroy them because of their sin. And last week we saw what brought them was the demon spirits that come out of the mouth of Satan, the dragon, and the beast, who is the Antichrist and the false prophet. They're depicted as frogs by John. But they convince the kings of the world to all gather together to war against Almighty God. And they do. They come. And so the preparation is being set for the last great battle on earth. And that is the sixth bowl judgment as the Euphrates dries up and the armies gather at a place called Armageddon or Armageddon. So today we come to the end of chapter 16 and the seventh and final bowl judgment. And I want you to see in verse 17, it starts, it says, The seventh angel poured out his vial into the air. Now, each of the vials is poured out on a different aspect of the earth. Here, this angel is pouring out his vial on the air. That's talking about the atmosphere and outer space, what would be referred to as the first and second heaven. Okay? Now, John was taken up, I'm sorry, Paul was taken up into third heaven. That is the throne room of God. That is the scene that we've seen several times in Revelation, starting at chapter 4. But this air is the first and second heaven, the atmosphere, and then the outer space around it. And so this judgment is poured out into the air. And some commentators believe that as a first act of this final judgment, God is now cleansing the former realm of Satan. Remember, Satan is referred to in Ephesians 2 by Paul as the prince of the power of the air. And back a few chapters in Revelation, I believe it's in chapter 9, Satan was exiled to the earth with all of his demons, and he could not uh, proceed from the earth. Now he's, he's basically chained, not chained, but confined there. And so he takes out his wrath upon whoever is left on the earth. But the bowl, the, this bowl judgment is poured out upon the air. And if you look at the other bowl judgments, you see this progression of God Uh, purging, if you will, or pouring out judgment upon different aspects of his creation over which authority has been usurped by Satan. And now God is reclaiming that authority. And first bowl was upon the earth, remember. The second bowl was upon the sea. The third bowl was upon the fresh waters. The fourth bowl was poured upon the sun. The fifth bowl took away light. Darkness was poured upon the, the, uh, the kingdom or the world, and now this bowl, the seventh bowl, is poured out on the atmosphere. The sixth bowl was poured out on the Euphrates River, and that dried up the river. But this bowl is poured out on the atmosphere. So every aspect of the earth now has been covered in judgment, literally, by these bowl judgments. And every aspect of creation is now both experiencing God's wrath for the curse of sin that's upon it, and also in the process of being purged by God to prepare for the kingdom of Christ. And that's what we're going to see here specifically in this seventh bowl judgment. So as the seventh bowl judgment is poured out, there are several things that take place. So we look at verse 17. 
the bowl is poured out upon the air. And then the second part of the verse says, there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. So the first thing that happens in this bowl judgment after it's poured out is we have a great voice from heaven. This term loud or great is used seven times just in this bowl alone. Okay, in this specific judgment. So if you want to call this the great judgment, I think that would be appropriate. Everything about it is great or magnified, if you will. And here we have a great voice from the throne of heaven that can be none other than God himself. Now, we don't know, and commentators debate, whether this is the voice of God the Father or whether this is the voice of Jesus Christ. It says it comes from the throne. We can assume that it's God the Father. But it's God nonetheless. Jesus is God, and the voice is God's, regardless of who it comes from. But what is important is what the voice says. And the three words that the voice says are, it is done. This is God stating that this is the end of his judgment upon earthly mankind and upon the earth itself. Okay? Remember back in Revelation chapter 10, the angel, one of the angels came and it says, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. So back in chapter 10, we were told that with the seventh angel, the seventh bowl angel, this would be the finality of God's judgment upon the earth. And the mystery of God would be finished. All of his working with mankind in this age is completed in this final judgment. Everything that God intends as far as judgment upon the earth is finished now. And so he says, it is done All his working with mankind on the earth as it is cursed with sin. All his dealings with the earth as it is cursed with sin. And all of his judgment because of that sin is finished in this judgment. This is the last and final judgment of God upon the earth. Now, I want you to remember back in chapter 15. Chapter 15 started this way. John says, I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them is filled up the wrath of God. That phrase, in them is filled up the wrath of God, means in them God's wrath is completed or finished. And so this seventh judgment finishes the wrath of God upon the earth. Now, chapter 15 is when John is introduced to these seven bold judgments. He describes them as the seven last plagues. It doesn't mean the last plagues in this series. It means the last plagues in all of history. Anything that would come upon the earth is going to be finished in this bold judgment from God. So God is stating here when he says it is done that his judgment upon the earth is finished. This is the last one. And I'll tell you what, as we start to go through this, boy, is it a doozy. Okay? And this is where we have this word great because this is going to be greater, more catastrophic, more unbelievable, if you will, than anything that's come before it. Now, we've seen a lot of catastrophic and just immensely uh, bad things come upon the earth, from demons to earthquakes to hail to all kinds of uh, plagues. There's all kinds of stuff happening to mankind right now. This one takes the cake, 
Okay, because this is it. This is the final word of God's judgment upon the earth. But I want you to think about these words that God speaks here. It is done. We have heard these words spoken by God before. Okay, in John 19, verse 30, these are the last words of Jesus Christ as he hung upon the cross. Remember, as he hung hung there, just before he gave up the ghost, the Bible says he turned and said, it is finished. What was he talking about when he said, it is finished, as he hung on the cross? He was talking about the judgment of God upon mankind's sin that was taken on him. See, that's what we need to understand about Jesus' death, and especially as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today. His death on the cross was our judgment for our sin taken by Jesus Christ. And when Jesus said, it is finished, he was not just saying, I have done everything that's necessary to reconcile mankind. He was also saying that for those who believe in him, all of God's judgment was finished on him. And so we don't have to suffer it. See, God will spare us the judgment. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus has delivered us from the wrath to come. Now that's talking specifically about the tribulation period, but also that eternal wrath of God in hell. And so when God says it is done here, he's echoing the very words of Jesus Christ upon the cross when he died, when he said, it is finished, the judgment is finished upon all those who believe in him. This is the finishing of judgment upon all unbelievers on the earth. So for those who reject Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and refuse to bow before him, their judgment isn't finished yet. Until we get to this point in the tribulation, at the end, when God pours out this bowl, that is the culmination of their earthly judgment. Now, they will have eternal torment and judgment in hell. But for us who are saved, our judgment was finished in Jesus Christ on the cross. So the voice comes from the throne, the great voice of God saying, it is done. That's the first thing. Second thing, there's a great storm from heaven and a great earthquake. Look at verse 18. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth so mighty an earthquake and so great. Now, there's several things that take place in this verse. All right, we've seen earthquakes and things happening before this. There was an earthquake in chapter 6 at the opening of the sixth seal. There was an earthquake in chapter 8 at the blowing of the seventh trumpet. And chapter 11, remember, introduces the seven bold judgments with an earthquake. So we've had three earthquakes at least just in this seven-year tribulation period, probably confined to the last three and a half years as God's judgments are poured out. And they are pretty severe compared to what Earth's history has experienced before this time. But this earthquake is going to be like no earthquake before it. But it says when God speaks, or right after he speaks, there's this series of things that happen. It's not just an earthquake. He says there's voices, thunderings, and lightnings, and an earthquake. Now, I want to talk about this earthquake here because this earthquake comes on the heels of, another stor- of, a, of a storm, if you will. If you look at the first part of the verse 18, voices and thunders and lightnings, 
These voices and thunders and lightnings we've seen again before. This is repeated in Revelation before this time. And it's symbolic of God's announcement of judgment. Remember when the seals were opened, there was a of thunders and lightnings that proceeded from the throne of God. In fact, in chapter 4, when John first is introduced into the throne room of God, there proceeds lightnings and thunderings and voices from the throne. And John was being led into the introduction of God's judgment that was coming upon the earth. So these voices, or noises, if you will, and thunders and lightnings are an introduction of judgment. And here, they are the introduction to the last judgment. In chapter 6, we had a precursor in the seals to what's happening here. In verse 1 of chapter 6, the first seal is opened, and it says, There was voice as of thunder. And then later in chapter 6, verse 12, when the sixth seal is opened, there is a great earthquake. So God is kind of all through these judgments preparing and giving people a little bit of a glimpse as far as what is to come. And every time there's a judgment, a new series of judgments that is being opened upon the earth, we see this phrase, voices or noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. And this one is no exception because this is the final judgment. In chapter 11, we read in verse 19, The temple of God was opened in heaven. There was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. There were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. Now that was the introduction to the seven bold judgments. And here we're finally at the seventh bold judgment. And what do we have? Voices and thunderings and lightnings and earthquake and great hail. So God was telling people, this is what's coming. Be aware. And now we finally arrived at the big event. Now for them, it's not something to celebrate. For the people on earth at this point, this is the end, literally. This is it for them. Because this is that final reaping of the earth that God is going to perform through his angels before Jesus Christ comes to set his kingdom up on the earth. So this is it. And it has, the, the final judgment has started. The end has finally arrived. The next event to happen after this is Jesus Christ himself will come back to earth, will trample his enemies, and start to set up his kingdom on earth. So we're at the end, folks. So we have this great storm, and then this earthquake happens. And again, I've already mentioned we've seen earthquakes in Revelation. There's one at the beginning of the, second, of the sixth seal. There's one at the blowing of the seventh trumpet. And this is the big one. And the verse says, A great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. Now, this probably takes a lot of people by surprise, even though there's been earthquakes happening frequently in this last three and a half years. But as you look around at our world today, it seems like earthquakes are happening more and more and more. Some of them are smaller, some of them are bigger, but there's more of them. Okay? If you will, I want you to think of every earthquake as God shaking the world. Because that's basically what it is. And when we come to this final great earthquake that God's going to bring upon the earth at the end of the tribulation, God literally calls it a shaking of the earth. And it's prophesied in both Haggai and the writer of Hebrews talks about it as well. In Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 The prophet says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. 
I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. That's a prophecy about this final earthquake. God will literally shake the earth and shake all nations. And the next thing that happens, Jesus Christ is set up as king of the world, literally. And he says in Haggai, And the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory. So the Haggai the prophet prophesied this great earthquake at the end of time. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, verses 25 through 27, See that you refuse not him that speaketh, talking about God. For if they escape not who refused him that spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaketh in heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, But now he promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. And the writer of Hebrews is talking about, physically, in a sense, this final shaking of the earth that will destroy everything that is man-made and everything that lifts up man above God. And that, we'll see how that happens here. And it is setting the, the, the environment and the atmosphere here, not the physical atmosphere, but the entire earth is being prepared by God for the coming of Jesus Christ to be king. And this earthquake is a shaking of the earth. In fact, the earthquake will be so great that it will completely change the earth's topography. Now, on earth... We learn in geography in elementary school, we learn about mountains and valleys and rivers and all of these caverns and all of this terminology that describes the different aspects of the Earth's topology. You know, the crust of the Earth is broken up into different continents. We have oceans between them. We have islands. We have polar ice caps. Okay, all of these things are going to change. We've already seen that probably... As, the, as in the fourth bold judgment, as the sun heats up, those polar ice caps are gone. The earth, in many places, are flooded with contaminated water. This is going to literally change the crust of the earth, preparing for Christ's coming. Okay, look at verse 19 and, how much these, and how, uh, what these changes are. Verse 19, and the great city was divided into three parts. I'm going to stop there for a second. This phrase, the great city is in debate among commentators and theologians about what it's referring to. Okay? Some commentators believe that this is referring to the destruction that's going to come against Babylon, which is the capital of the Antichrist empire. That God will divide it into three, it will fall, and it will be destroyed completely. Now, because of the references that we read in Revelation... And what we see in some of the Old Testament prophets, I believe that the city of Babylon will be physically rebuilt. It already was partially rebuilt by Saddam Hussein. But I believe that becomes the the centerpiece of the um, kingdom of the Antichrist. Now, other people will say, well, Babylon is symbolic for Rome. They think Rome is going to be the center. Some people will even go far, as far to say, as, well, Babylon is the symbol for commercialism and for humanism, and that really is manifested in the United States. The United States is going to be Babylon. Okay, I don't know about all that. I believe the city of Babylon is going to be rebuilt, and that will be the center of the Antichrist's rule. That's where he will rule from. And as I mentioned, 
We already talked about where Babylon is situated on the Euphrates. That was kind of the center of where sin started on the earth and from where it grew. And so there's no reason why it shouldn't be exactly where it ends up at the end times and where it ends. And in fact, what we'll see in the next two chapters in 17 and 18 is a description of the fall of Babylon, not just as a city, but as a system, both a religious system and the economic system of Babylon are, the, are destroyed in chapter 17 and 18. So Babylon, talking about that great city, some people think this is Babylon. I don't believe it is, because Babylon is mentioned further on in this verse in a separate context. I believe what we're talking about here is another great city. And if you go back to chapter 11, verse 8, in the context of the two witnesses, remember where the two witnesses were stationed? In Jerusalem. And from there they preached the gospel. And from there they preached God's judgment. And it was there that the Antichrist killed them. And it was from the streets of Jerusalem after three days that God raised them from the dead and they had their own private rapture in Jerusalem. And in verse 8, it says, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city. That's Jerusalem, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. We don't know any other city except Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified. So when the Revela- in Revelation, when it talks about the great city, it's talking about Jerusalem. So I believe what John is, de- is uh, describing here is Jerusalem being divided into three parts. And it's going to be divided into three parts by the great earthquake. Now this is the beginning of great changes that are coming upon the earth to set the stage for Christ's rule as, and his kingdom. Jerusalem is where Jesus will rule from. And in Zechariah chapter 4, verses uh, 4 through 10, the prophet Zechariah describes this specific period of time, in fact, this very event, when Jesus comes back. And he says in verse 4, talking about Jesus, And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. There shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove north, and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach into Azale. Yea, ye shall flee, like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah the king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be as one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, half of them toward the hinder sea, in summer and in winter shall it be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord and his name one, And the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, and it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate, unto the corner gate, from the tower of Hananiel unto the king's wine presses. Now there's a lot of prophecy there, but there's three major things that you see in Zechariah when Jesus returns. Number one, the Mount of Olives is going to be split in two. 
When he steps on the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives will literally crack in half and a great valley will form in the middle of it. And that will be the route that those people who are trapped in Jerusalem during the great battle of Armageddon, the people of God, will be able to escape through from the torment and from the rage of the Antichrist. So Jesus delivers them. Second of all, he says there'll be rivers of water that come out of Jerusalem. There is no water that comes out of Jerusalem right now. In fact, there's only one major spring in Jerusalem. It's called the Spring of Gihon, and it runs under the Temple Mount. Remember, that is the uh, spring that Hezekiah dug the tunnel to divert into Jerusalem right before uh, the Assyrians and Babylonians attacked so that they wouldn't run out of water. Okay, so but this is a river that will come out of Jerusalem. So once the Mount of Olives splits, Jerusalem will literally have a river that runs south, I'm sorry, that runs east and west. One river will go toward the Mediterranean Sea, the other river will go toward the Dead Sea. And in other places in scripture we'll read in the Millennial Kingdom, the Dead Sea will no longer be dead because now it has this river of life flowing from the place where Christ's throne will be. And so everything that's watered by it will, uh, will abound with life. And then thirdly in Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 14, it says that it will be lifted up. Talking about the city of Jerusalem, the city will literally be lifted up. It will be elevated in height. Okay, that's a physical change that's going to take place in the city. And it says that Jesus will provide light there, so there's no need for sun or moon. Now, Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the living water. Jesus called himself both of those things. And literally, in the millennial kingdom, the water will come from his throne. His bread will be the bread that feeds every nation. And his light will light the entire earth without sun or moon or stars. So you see massive changes that are going to be taking place to prepare for Christ's kingdom. But this is one of them. And when the city of Jerusalem is lifted up, it's divided into three parts. And by the way, John MacArthur points out this is not a judgment against Jerusalem. This is preparation because Jerusalem has already been judged. If you go back to Revelation chapter 11, remember in the context of the two witnesses, in verse 13, When the two witnesses rise up from the dead, it says the same hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth part of the city fell, Jerusalem. So that earthquake is centered in Jerusalem and a tenth of part of the city fell and then 7,000 men were killed. That's God's judgment upon the city. Now how do we know that it doesn't continue in judgment? Because the next phrase in 11.13 says, and the remnant were afraid and gave glory to God of heaven. That's the only place in the midst of all this judgment that we see people responding to the judgment of God by giving him glory. This is that remnant that God says he will preserve. And it's after this earthquake, when Jerusalem is judged, people are killed, and people start to see what God is doing, that the remnant of the Jews will turn and accept the Lord's judgment on them and also accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah. So this is not judgment in Jerusalem. This is preparation, okay, for Jerusalem specifically. So in the earthquake, the first thing we see is that Jerusalem is divided into three parts. Look at the second phrase. It says in verse uh, 19, 
and the cities of the nations fell. What are the cities of the nations? Everything else that man has built. Now remember all of the judgments that God has brought upon the earth to this point. Okay? Floods, hordes of demons, destructive um, asteroids and space objects hurtling into the earth, you know, water being contaminated. God is destroying everything that mankind has built because he doesn't want mankind to glory in mankind. And so he's removing everything that they would worship. And here in this final act of judgment, God literally levels every city left. Now you think about cities like San Francisco, New York, Atlanta, you know, major cities in our country. There are big cities around the world. God will level them. There will be nothing left in this earthquake. Why? Why would God destroy all the cities? Because he is getting rid of anything that could exalt mankind and his own accomplishments. Remember, if you go all the way back into Genesis, we, hear, we read there about the story of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was instigated by a man named Nimrod, who was a great warrior against God. And the whole purpose of the Tower of the Babel was to what? It was to bind the people on earth together in unity as they sought to ascend to the heavens where God resided. Sounds just like Satan. And that has been the purpose of mankind through Satan's influence through all of history. To ascend to where God is so I can be God. And everything that we've built and every accomplishment that man has done on this earth glories in man. People take credit. You see name plaques. You see people's statues all over the place. You see people's names on everything. God's going to get rid of all of it. Because the only one that will be exalted in the millennial kingdom is Jesus Christ. So he levels, literally levels, the cities of the earth. All the cities of the world will fall. Nothing will be left of man's accomplishments because all eyes and thoughts and all worship will be on Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. So that's the second thing. He levels the cities of the world. Third, Babylon is specifically targeted by God for destruction. The next phrase in verse 19, it says, And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Now, Babylon here is specifically targeted by God for destruction. Okay? Babylon, as we've already pointed out, is kind of the center, the origin of all the evil on the earth. It's where it all started. It's where it all came from. And you go through history, and we've done this before, and all of these evil things in the world kind of start right there in that area of Babylon. So Babylon here is mentioned as a special object of God's judgment. He says, to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Remember, we studied already back in chapter 15, when God will trample in his winepress his wrath that's uh, brought out upon the nations. And here, he's trampling Babylon, specifically, the system and the city. Okay? 
But Babylon is mentioned as a special object of God's judgment because God remembers. Now, the book of Zechariah, the name Zechariah literally means God remembers. And most of the book of Zechariah is prophecy about the end times of God's judgment upon his people, of God's judgment upon sinners, and Jesus Christ coming to set up his kingdom. And so here in Revelation, we have this phrase that Babylon is brought to God's remembrance. God remembers the the judgment that he promised against sin. And this city and this system is specifically singled out. Remember in chapter 14, there are three angels who came with messages from God. And the second angel in chapter 14, verse 8 says, Babylon has fallen, has fallen that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. God remembers Babylon's sin and what she propagated around the world. In chapter 16, God is showing the destruction of the city specifically here, but in chapter 17 and 18, as I already mentioned, we're going to see great details as to the destruction of both the economic and the religious systems of this false god of Babylon, the city or the system that the Antichrist and Satan have set up to replace God in the world. And in Isaiah chapter 24, Isaiah prophesies like uh, this in chapters, in verse 17 through 22. Fear and the pit and the snare are upon thee, O inhabitants of the earth. It shall come to pass that he who fleeth from the noise of fear shall fall into the pit. He that cometh up out of the midst of the pit shall be taken in the snare. For the windows from on high are open, the foundations of earth do shake. The earth is utterly broken down, the earth is clean dissolved, the earth is moved exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard, and shall be removed like a cottage. The transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it, it shall fall and not rise again. And then from there Isaiah goes to describe Jesus Christ coming on his kingdom, and then it will sit on the throne. So Isaiah prophesied through this earthquake, the cities of the earth, and specifically this system of sin in Babylon, is going to fall. And so God targets everything in Babylon, both the city and the system. And in a sense, this is the end of the glory of mankind. Now, if you go all the way back to Daniel, and we studied Daniel a few earlier this year in Bible study, and Daniel is told about the times of the Gentiles, started with Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was the great king of Babylon, built one of the seven wonders of the world, built a great idol, and caused all people to bow down and worship it. Sounds like the Antichrist. Well, he was a picture of the Antichrist. But with him started what was called the times of the Gentiles, when Gentile nations and kings would rule over the area of Judea, and specifically Jerusalem. That continues even to today. That will not end until the end of the tribulation. And that's when Jesus rules over not just Jerusalem, but the whole world. So this is the end of the time of man, the end of the time of the Gentiles. It is the beginning of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And everything that exalts mankind is wiped out by God in this massive earthquake. So we have 
Babylon targeted here. Thirdly, and fourthly, this great earthquake will totally change the topography of the entire earth. Look at the phrases that are given. I told you about Jerusalem being raised up, about it being divided. I read from Zechariah about the Mount of Olives being split, okay, the river that comes out of Jerusalem. But look at what do we see in verse 20. Every island fled away and the mountains were not found. This affects the entire world, not just Jerusalem. When the Bible tells us, and John records here, that every island fled away, he's saying there are no more islands. They're gone. And every mountain is gone. God literally is going to level the earth. He takes away the mountains in this great earthquake. Now, I don't know any earthquake to date that has leveled even one entire mountain. This earthquake is going to level all the mountains of the world. Now, some commentators have said, God is preparing the earth. He's literally shaking the earth as he shook the earth at the flood and reversing the actions that he took during the flood. Now, if you go back into Genesis chapter 7 and talk about when the flood hit, in chapter 7 it uses this phrase, the fountains of the great deep were broken up. Creation scientists have studied the topography of the floor of the ocean. And under the ocean, we can't see it, But there are great mountains. In fact, the tallest mountain on earth is under the ocean. Okay? And the deepest trench in the world, the deepest valley, is under the ocean. It's called the Marianas Trench. But those mountains under the ocean are actually formed by lava. They are lava mountains. Okay? Which means God said, when God opened the fountains of the deep, During the flood, it wasn't just water that came out. It was lava. And scientists believe, and if you look at the earth and the shape of the continents, you can see how this would make sense, that the earth was all one mass continent at creation called Pangaea. When the flood hit, that mass was broken up as these fountains opened up, and it created the oceans between the continents, separating the continents from each other. And some commentators say when God does this great earthquake and the last times that he's going to undo that work, he's going to level the mountains, he's going to bring those continents back together, the islands will be gone because islands are nothing more than mountains under the water. And the tops poke out. And I can see that that's a reasonable expectation based on what God tells us here. But the earth is going to be completely changed. The world will look totally different. Why? Because we will have a completely different ruler. We will have a completely different system from anything that's ever existed on the earth from the fall of Adam and Eve until then. Jesus Christ will rule in absolute righteousness. And as we get to chapter 19 and start to look at the millennial kingdom, you'll see the earth is totally different than the millennial kingdom. The light from the sun is seven times greater. doesn't mean it's hotter. It means it's greater. People will live longer. In fact, it it won't be surprising to see people live a thousand years like they did before the flood. And the prophets in the Old Testament say that someone who dies at 100 years old in the millennial kingdom is a child. So everything will be different in the millennial kingdom, including the earth. 
We won't have the cities. We won't have our houses. We won't have our favorite places. Because it's not about us. All eyes will be on Jesus Christ. And he will be ruling from Jerusalem, which at that point will be the highest place on earth, which is absolutely appropriate for the highest king of heaven. So this massive earthquake destroys everything and prepares the world for the rule of Jesus Christ. And then finally, the last act in verse 21, there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven. Every stone about the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Finally, God sends this great hailstorm. Now, God has used hail in judgment before. Remember, hail was one of the plagues in Exodus chapter 9 in Egypt. And in Joshua 10, we have a story of ten kings of Canaan who joined together to fight against Israel as Joshua is leading them. And in that battle, God tells Joshua, don't be afraid. I'm going to give you the victory. Go out and fight against them, even though they were greatly outnumbered. And the Bible tells us that the end of that battle, God wins, not Israel. God wins because God sends great hailstones that kill more people than were killed with the sword in the entire battle. So God uses hail in judgment. And in fact, the prophet Isaiah uses the analogy of a hailstorm to describe the judgment of God that's going to come against Israel as Assyria comes in to destroy them. But in each of these instances, God uses hail as judgment, even against Israel. Now, I want to remind you, this is not chastisement. God is not chastising his people here. He's judging sinful people. Okay? So hail is God's judgment. In fact, in Job 38, verse 22, remember that great conversation, that one-sided conversation that Job had with God? When Job started to ask questions and God said, okay, if you want to ask questions, let me ask the questions. And then for four chapters, God spills out questions to Job that there's no way he can answer. In the middle of that, in chapter 38, verse 22 and 23, God asked this, Hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow? Hast thou seen the treasures of the hail? which I have reserved against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war. God told Job that there would be great hail at the end of time. And God is reserving up this great, the greatest of hail for this final judgment. Now, anyone who's alive at all by this time in the tribulation has got to be exasperated with God. Okay, either they've repented or their hearts are just so hardened now we've seen they just keep, continue to blaspheme God. And these hailstones are not going to change their mind. But God says this, the hailstones are the weight of a talent. Now, a talent in biblical times was basically a word that was used for the average amount of weight that an average person could carry. And it ranged based on your culture from 60 to 75 pounds up to 120 to 135 pounds. The average is about 100 pounds. So I want you to think of hailstones, 100 pounds. A hailstone, 100 pounds, would be between a foot and a foot and a half in diameter. That big. That's a cannonball, folks. That's not a hailstone. Okay? And they're going to be raining down on earth from heaven. Now, you've seen hail in the past, okay? 
Rome, when they attacked Jerusalem in 70 AD and destroyed the city and the temple, used catapults, and from those catapults they launched stones that were about 100 pounds weight, a talent. It caused massive destruction in the city. Now, Rome didn't have unlimited stones, and Rome didn't have unlimited catapults, but God has unlimited resources of hail. And if you've seen hail, it's not, look out, here comes one. It just comes. And it keeps coming. And there's no way to avoid it. And these hailstones are not marble or golf ball size or even baseball size. A hundred pounds, a foot and a half in diameter, just coming down like rain. That's judgment. The largest hailstone ever recorded on earth so far has been about two pounds. These hailstones will be 50 times that. Nothing like earth has ever seen before. It's reported... I already shared this reported by Josephus that the Romans used these 100-pound stones. And in fact, Josephus uh, says that when Rome started their assault against Jerusalem, they used just plain white stones. And because they were white, the people in Jerusalem could see them coming so they could dodge them. They would assault them at night. The white was reflected in the light. And so to inflict more harm... Rome painted them black, and then the people couldn't see them, and that's when the destruction really started happening. But as I mentioned, it's not going to be, oh, look out, here comes one. It's just going to be this mass barrage of hail from God upon the earth. People have questioned whether this is even possible with our current atmospheric conditions. Probably not. But God just poured out his final judgment upon the air. The earth's atmosphere is going to change. And so 100-pound hailstones are altogether possible with a God for whom all things are possible. So it has nothing to do with what is naturally possible or what we see as far as the laws of nature today. And people can't dismiss what God's going to use in judgment based on natural law and what's possible because God is the God of all that. And so God will use literally the naturally impossible to judge the world with these 100-pound hailstones. Now, all of this is in preparation for Jesus' return. This is the last thing that happens. The next thing is Jesus coming back at his second coming. Okay? But look at the last part of verse 21, because there's the story summed up in one phrase. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. This shows the general response of sinful mankind to whatever God does. There are people who say, well, if God would show miracles, if God would show his power, if God raised people from the dead, then I'd believe. Even unsaved people start to pray when catastrophe hits, but how long does that last? Only until they're delivered, only until things turn around and then back to the norm. People are hardened in their sin, and it's not going to be any different. In fact, it's going to be the culmination of that in the end times, at the end of the tribulation period. He says, even as God torments them, 
They're now being battered with this great hail. They're without water. They're experiencing extreme heat. They have boils and sores all over their body, shrouded in darkness, now with great hailstones plummeting to the earth. And what do they do? They blaspheme God. They don't turn to God to seek forgiveness. They get mad at God for making their life miserable. And that's the general response of unredeemed mankind. And unfortunately, it's the response of some Christians as we lack in faith because all of a sudden our lives are not what we want them to be. We get mad at God because God has not done good things for us. You know, last week I shared with you the story of the man whose friend died one week or three weeks ago. He inherited, you know, $75. The next week his aunt died and he inherited $175,000. And then the next week, somebody else died, and he inherited half a million dollars. And his friend asked him why he's so sad, and he said, because this week I got nothing. And that's the way we are with God as people. You know, if God doesn't keep giving us what we think we deserve, we get mad at God. Here, these people think they deserve their lives. They deserve blessing. They deserve an easy life. They deserve all the profit that comes from the worldly system. And God destroys all that to show them what's really important. And what do they do? They complain and blaspheme God. They give not God the glory. And that's what condemns us all. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of glorifying God. That's what sin is defined as, not giving God the glory. And that's why there's a fine line between humanitarian good works and truly loving God, because in humanitarian good works, a person could do good works their whole life and not give God the glory for it. And if God is left out, then all of those acts of good works are, in God's eyes, filthy rags. We're of all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We don't give glory to God by our very nature because we all have a sinful nature. And it's the Holy Spirit that has to change that in us. And that's what Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Because we don't give God glory, we all deserve death. That's exactly what God's bringing upon the earth in the end times. That's exactly what every single sinner deserves. But the second part of that verse says what? But... The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, if we're still fighting against God and blaming him for all of our problems, then we're not giving him glory. There's no way a person can call themselves a true believer and follower of Christ and continue to complain against God for all the bad things that happen in their life. This says they blasphemed God because of the great hailstones. God's ruining their life. And I have news for you. If you're still fighting against God and blaming him for all your problems, it's going to get worse. It's going to get a lot worse. Because if you're not ready when Jesus comes at the rapture, then you're going to go through everything we just read. And that judgment is for sinners. People who reject God, who rebel against his authority, and who blaspheme him in not giving him the glory in everything. 
But we can avoid that judgment both now and the future by surrendering our life to the Lord now. And I have a problem, and I'm not going to preach this message. I'll do it another time. I have a problem with what's called easy believism where, oh, I said the prayer, I walked the aisle, I believe in Jesus Christ, so I'm good no matter what my life looks like. I'm going to be saved and I'm going to heaven. And Jesus and the Bible said otherwise. There's no such thing as life insurance or fire insurance salvation. You either surrender to God as your authority and as your king, or you don't. Jesus is coming back. If we're saved, then we should be chomping in the bit for that event. Okay? Like my friend who gets up in the morning and jumps up and down four times for rapture practice. Okay? He's ready. We should be too. But none of us need to be caught unaware. None of us have to go through this kind of, the wrath of God that's poured out upon the earth. God has provided a way if we just submit to him now. But this is the wrath that's coming, folks. And it's all in preparation for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that's what we should all be looking forward to. And may none of us miss that. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would just help us to remember these things that you've taught us today from your word. Lord, the end times is going to be an awful, terrible time for mankind. But thankfully, you have told us how we can avoid that. If we accept you as king now, if we make you king of our lives now and yield to your authority, give you all, accepting Jesus as our Savior and the Messiah, then we will worship with him and rejoice with him in his kingdom. But Lord, I pray that if there's those here today or those who hear this message that are not surrendered to Jesus Christ, that you would convict them. I pray that you'd bring them to saving faith before your wrath sets in. And so, Lord, give us hope. Help us to set our eyes on you and nothing else and to give you glory in everything as your purpose has determined. Bless this, this day. Keep us always in your word and in your grace. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing, again, what's considered a Christmas song, 83. It's not a Christmas song. It's a song about the second coming of Jesus Christ and him.